So my mom told me um, when I was about 10 years old is when I remember seeing Backdraft and I was like, man, I, I'm going to be a fireman. And she told me, sweetie, your mind will change <clears throat> so many times before you, you know, turn 18. When I was 18 years old, I walked across the stage and I graduated fire academy. So I got to 19s at, in July 7, 2010, and it was just, I don't remember the exact day, but it was a couple of shifts after that, that we had just got there in the morning and I was on the ambulance that day and we had responded just south of 30, around the corner from Fair Park. And uh, yeah, guy's head was basically, he was found dead in the backyard with his head squished like with a rock. And then I thought, man, this is, some, I mean, this is a real deal here. And so then I ended up pulling the ambulance. I, I just pulled up a little bit past him so the back of the ambulance was even with him. Will gets out and tends to the patient about the time, you know, and then I get out with the radio and the computer. And as I'm making my way around the back of the ambulance, Will comes running around the back of the ambulance and says, hey man, we gotta get out of here. There's a guy with an AR. <clears throat> and he kind of points like through the ambulance. We're standing behind an ambulance there's a guy walking towards us with the with the gun with, with a long black rifle is what I know at the time but we learned later it was an AR on his shoulder he's looking down the barrel of it um, very calmly very methodically walking down the sidewalk he never ran he never you know changed his pace that I could see and then we still have a, a patient that was laying there on the ground next to us you're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but we get strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. fireman's prayer when I am called to duty God whatever flames may rage give me the strength to save some life whatever be its age help me embrace a little child before it's too late or some older person from the horror of that fate enable me to be alert and hear the weakest shout and quickly and efficiently put the fire out I want to fill my calling and give the best in me to guard my neighbor and protect his property. And if according to your will, I have to lose my life, please bless with your protecting hand my children and my wife. A.W. Smokey Lynn. Smokey Lynn wrote a fireman's prayer after he'd been at a call involving children trapped in a burning apartment building. The firefighters could see the children in the windows but could not rescue them due to the iron bars the apartment owner had installed. Today's guest is a good friend of the show, 
and a good friend of the ATO. He grew up in Oregon, but got to Texas as fast as he could. This guest married his high school sweetheart. They are parents to the beautiful twins, Callahan Whalen and Corbin Lee. To attempt to change culture, break stigmas, and uproot long ingrained environments in the first responder world. It's an uphill battle. It's a constant fight. This show knows that all too well. This guest chose to take on this fight. He chose to help plant trees that he may never benefit from the shade. His mission is to help generations of first responders that drive into Dallas, Texas to serve. Please welcome Dallas Fire and Rescue, Casey Ellsworth, to the stage. Casey Ellsworth, welcome to the stage. Yeah, thank you for having me. Do you, are, are you aware of us? Have you heard of this? I'm this pretty familiar okay. with ATO, okay. yeah. Okay. I also want to welcome on Sergeant Omar Figueroa. Thanks for having me, Joe. Yep, he's been on the mic before uh, in our Al episode. He had quite the uh, seven-seven tail. Uh, and always here is Sergeant Kent Wolverton. We also have very special guests uh, in the room. We can't coax them into coming on the mic yet, but we have AJ Claggett. Yeah, I did say Claggett. It's a daughter of Dottie and Steve Claggett. She's sitting in today. Her mom is uh, here, Dottie. She's back in the room, and as well as Judy Kurtz. Uh, they're sitting in to uh, be the peanut gallery for this episode. I'm going to try to talk them into getting on the mic later on, but we'll see. And actually, they're the only... Uh, now I think we've had all the Claggetts in the recording room, except for Dr. Matt Claggett. We need to get him in here. Casey, you ready to get into this? We got quite a bit to talk about. Um, it's been a minute since we've had a had a firefighter on. And I've had some people at the uh, the Legends Fit there in Rockwall complaining that we haven't had any more firefighters. And I've had your bio for for a good while, and it's you know you kind of him hot around for the longest time on getting this scheduled. And you know I'm glad we're getting it done. All right, Casey, let's talk about life growing up. So I moved to Texas whenever I was seven. Uh, I live with my stepdad, my mom, and my half-brother because I don't know who my real dad is. He ended up leaving my mom apparently when she was pregnant because he was physically abusive. Uh, My mom, she worked as a restaurant manager, uh, fast food, and uh, primarily fast food. Uh, My stepdad, he the reason that we moved to Texas was he worked for like a – they built like roofing trusses. Uh, a company that built those and uh, they they relocated us here and then sent you know pretty quick after we moved here he ended up getting laid off uh, money was always tight uh, we bought cars you know from tote the notes uh, different areas one particular place in mine's off Barry Avenue in Fort Worth we would uh, that would be our weekend trip to Fort Worth to go make the car payment and basically we'd keep those cars until they either caught on fire they got repoed or they break down and we'd have to buy a new one uh, really in all honesty, the only thing that was consistent was inconsistency, right? I, I did not learn until I got older that basically a lot of our groceries came from the food pantry across the street and as well as like our Christmas presents and stuff. You put in your bio that you, you lived in a motel and you was, uh, from eight years old until graduation, and you kind of legit, you just kind of left it at that. 
and I knew there was a story, uh, a, a much deeper story uh, behind that. Kind of sharpen your gratitude at an early age. Yeah, so when we first moved to Texas, we moved to Arlington. <clears throat> then we also lived in Bedford and then ultimately Euless. And again, as I got older, I realized that we would live in a, an apartment until basically we were evicted because we, my parents would stop paying the, paying the bills because, you know, he got, he got laid off. And the last place that we had landed was the mid cities Inn that's in, in Euless, um, to kind of paint that picture as a regular, um, like double queen motel room, but it had cinder block walls. Um, my both my parents they chain smoked where you could literally draw your name um in the soot you know on those walls um we cooked my mom would cook every now and then uh with an electric skillet and then eventually we ended up getting like a toaster oven uh, we ate a lot of hamburger helper uh, and then about the puberty age i don't remember specifically we ended up getting bunk beds and that was my privacy i was able to get my own bed about probably 12 or 13, so I didn't have to sleep with my little brother anymore. Um, but, yeah, like you mentioned, the, the motel did teach me a lot. <clears throat> um, I was exposed to real life um, at a pretty young age. Uh, we'll just leave it at biology, you know, uh, with the different people that were moving in and out of the hotel, drugs, alcohol. Uh, violence was a way of life. Um, basically, if you weren't screaming, you weren't getting your point across is kind of the, the points that I – I took at one point drug trafficking was so bad that um, police blocked off like the entrance to where there was only one way in one way out. So the police could control like the entrance <clears throat> kind of a fun fact. The mid-season actually just got shut down because in 2021 there was a big investigation there because a guy had killed three people and dismembered their bodies and actually put them in the dumpster there, which that was the same dumpster that I used to dive in and, you know, Saturday morning was like Christmas because I would go collect all the beer cans and take them down the street to recycle them so I could have lunch money for the next week. And that was there in Euless. Yep, right down the street from the and police it, station. And it literally just got shut down. Yeah, the incident happened in 2021, but it just now... It took that long. We have, you know, people. a lot of people don't realize that where Euless is at, it's it's kind of in between uh, DFW Airport and Dallas on the... Uh, was at the north, kind of the western side of the Metroplex. Um, and a lot of people may not be aware that there are, po- there are places in Euless in the Irving area that are that bad. Because that sound, that what you're describing is sounds a lot like South Dallas and, and, and parts of the Pleasant Grove area. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Euless is about 11 point, you know, two square miles. Um, if you've ever flown in a DFW airport, you've probably flown right over it. Um, if you've driven to Fort Worth, you probably drove right through it, didn't even know it. They have, you know, it's a pretty small town. They've got three fire stations and about 150 uh, police personnel. So as a as a kid, living in a, a motel, what did you do for recreation? I mean, obviously there was the uh, can collecting, but beyond that, what did, what did you do for fun when you were growing up in that environment? So there was, down the street from me, there was like residential homes that I had you know, a handful of friends down there. One, one became a really close friend. Um, I would sneak out, uh, well, sneak out. It's, you really can't do that in a hotel room, right? But I would avoid going home and I would stay with him, you know, quite a bit. 
and I was fortunate that him and his family would lie for me and like take me in and you know so I had some sort of normalcy you could say normalcy that was that's what it was for you though you kind of what normal is for most it wasn't that wasn't your reality I mean that's a good point yeah I normal I guess what I envisioned was mom and dad sitting down having conversations with their kids or eating dinner together not worried about the next you know tv show that's fixing to start or you know having to go to bed early because you have to get up the next day I don't you know we don't have time for you and you know things like that I would spend a lot of time uh, talking uh, which is still something I do a lot of today but I would talk to a lot. Of, I mean, just grown people, um, just hang out with them and watch them drink beer, or watch them, you know, shoot up or, or whatever, hang out with them by the pool and, or wreak havoc was probably what I like to do around the hotel. What kind of havoc were you getting into? I would, um, like knock on doors and run away. I would, um, block the gutters, like the rain gutters. So when it would rain, it would like make waterfalls over. It wouldn't go down the downspouts. I would go, the maids would come like clean the, clean the, the rooms and I would try to, I would steal the cart and like run down the thing. So they, I mean, basically I was just inconvenience. I wasn't really stealing it, but. It's mischievous. I, yeah. Yeah. It was to entertain. I mean, entertain yourself in a ecosystem of, I mean, poverty and just a lot of bad habits and bad, bad actors. And your was there a point where you saw yourself kind of, you could go down that route of being a bad person or a bad kid other than just being mischievous because we all go through sports of that, but you were actually immersed in that, that environment. The opportunities were presented. All, I mean, they were endless. Yeah. I could have easily, I could have easily got wrapped up in drugs, drinking, sex trafficking or been sex trafficked or uh, fighting. You know, i I'm not left-handed at all, but I learned how to hit with my left hand because normally if you stand with your right shoulder up front, I mean, that's typically the shoulder you'll, you know, hit with first or whatever, but, um, yeah, no, I could have easily, uh, got wrapped up in the, the, with the wrong crowd and things, but I, I became a compulsive liar for a really long time. And so I learned how to kind of keep my story straight and kind of get, uh, out of trouble, if you will. But then it started catching up to me in high school. They always do. So when you're, when you're in high school, uh, we all know the pressures of, of, of that. And you're, you're living in an environment like that, and you're going to school. What school did you go to? Euless Trinity. Okay. Is it still there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So when you had your classmates and your friends, did they know uh, – where you lived and did you did you hide that from them or did you was that part of your lies and that you were having to tell <clears throat> that was a big part of it uh two of my closest friends uh three of them excuse me they they all knew where i lived uh nobody else did i kept that pretty quiet um i wouldn't give out my phone number to anybody because when you called the phone number you would have to ask for my room number 215 to in order for them to get you know, put you through. And so I didn't want to have to explain any of that. How are you as a student? Like as far as grades and pretty good student considering the circumstances and environment you were in? 
I mean, yeah, considering the circumstances, I guess you could say that. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't think I applied myself quite a bit. Um, I learned pretty young that it didn't really matter. Um, just more effort was just meant more work, and I was get tired versus all I got to do is pass. Like, GPA didn't really matter because I knew I wasn't going to go to college. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the acting out and the class clowns and what we know now today is bullying was I was just – starving for attention so even if it was negative attention or if it was the quote-unquote bad I would I would do that just so somebody would would pay attention to me or acknowledge me what year did you graduate 2005 and that's when you you got an EMT and basic fire that when did you realize you wanted to go into that field so when I was about 10 years old is when I knew I wanted to become a firefighter um, HEB which was a school district that I went to, they had this program where you'd spent a few weeks with the police officers and they took you like through the jail and we got to go on a short ride along, let you, you know, they would let us like shoot radar um, and just different aspects of the job. And then the the rest of the summer, we got to go like hang out at the fire station and, and spend a little bit of time there. And kind of then is when I, when I, realized that that's that's what I wanted to do what appealed to you most about that uh probably the family aspect of it um I mean I know I had family like people were in my life but it wasn't I really wasn't a part of it and so when I was at the fire station and I saw the way that they kind of interacted and they were like really close to one another I I mean I just instantly like was drawn to it because that's something you were, you had been lacking in your life. Mm-hmm. From that, you know, what else drew you to that profession? Other than just the family atmosphere, which still exists to, to this day. Backdraft. Backdraft, that movie? Kurt Russell? Yep. Okay. <clears throat> is that your favorite fire movie? It probably is, yeah. Yeah? <clears throat> All right. What about it? It's how cool it was, or Kurt Russell was pretty I, great in it? I really think it was just... Yeah, the action stuff and the things that they got to do. And I I can't really pinpoint exactly about it, but I know that's not like the most glamorous like thing. The, you know, they got me into this, but. Didn't Howie Long do a firefighter movie too that was pretty awesome? I remember him throwing an axe over the top of his head. Remember that movie with Howie Long? I had to look that up. There was also a good firefighter TV show. Firestorm. No, was nope. it, that's the name of the movie. Howie what? Long was oh, Howie Long Firestorm. Have you seen that? I'm not. You, you need to look it up. That's it's very low budget, but it's actually entertaining. Get a cool flat top. Um, <laughs> what's the firefighter uh, show that had the comedian um, that he was the lead in it, but he was it was a serious role, and he kind of was a, a piece of. It was Dennis Leary, right? Dennis, Dennis Leary, Leary yes. yes. Do you remember that show? No, I just look like I watch yeah. a lot of TV, but Dude, I really Ralph. don't. Know. <laughs> He's kind of young, too. Yeah, you are young. Okay. Well, you need to, you need to check out that show. I'll get uh, I'll get Kent to look that up. Is that look. Burning? No, it wasn't Burning. Uh, yeah, look it up if you get a chance. Um, so when you started basic... Uh, fire and EMT school. How'd that look? And how how hard? What what route did you get into that? Because you graduated, and what was family life like when you graduated? As far as support, you were still living. It was still the motel. 
Yes. Okay. I, and you t- would you tell them, hey, this is what I want to do, or did you just go do it? Yeah, two days after I graduated high school, I moved out. Um, I, I moved in with two guys that I met with at Spring Creek Barbecue, which was a, a restaurant that I used to work at. What did your uh, family say about this when you, you just moved out? Yeah, I don't, honestly, I don't remember what they said. I, I don't really think I gave them an option. I, You were just escaping. Yeah, I had been waiting on. to move out since probably 12 or 13 years old. I just didn't really have a place to go that I really thought I could go and, like, you know, make it work. Once that opportunity came up, you just jumped on it, and, and you you were, you were wanted to be part of the first responder world and the EMT and the firefighter world. You Where did you go? What uh, – what schooling did you uh, go into? I went to EMT school uh, two days after I graduated, and then two weeks after EMT school, I started um, the fire academy. Where was that at? <clears throat> at Tarrant County College. Okay. Now, w- as far as, like, expenses and how, how was that when you got into that? What kind of process was that get to get into? Is this basically how did you pay for it? I mean, did you're, you said you were working at the barbecue, but so did you – pay for all that yourself or did you get a grant or or how was that how'd you get into that so emt school i actually had three jobs right before i um the the year before i graduated i would work at a bagel place from about 4 a.m to 8 a.m and i would open there and then i would go to hurricane harbor from like 9 to 4 and then i would work at spring creek barbecue from about 5 p.m till 10 or 11 at night and i would just save uh the money that i knew i could pay for emt school I didn't know how I was going to pay for fire school. Uh, that was, I, I want to say it was around $2,200, plus you had to supply your own gear. And there wasn't any way I knew I could do that. My parents were never really an option to go to them for money or co-signing or anything like that. And so <clears throat> probably the other thing that led me into this job was, you know, as I got older, I've only been a believer for a little over a year. Um, but you know, I'm learning now that it probably was my calling because it doesn't really make sense how I got here. Cause really, I, you know, it really wouldn't have worked out because the work at that, to work at that spring Creek barbecue that I was working at and have the manager that I had, um, you know, I, I had gotten comfortable with him over the years and I explained to him, Hey, I'd like to go to fire school and you know, but as a manager, I thought he was going to be disappointed in me because he wanted me to be a lifelong, like, restaurant person and all this. But he offered to give me the money, you know, or he did give me the money to go to, to fire school. And then he also asked me, hey, how about asking some other fire departments if you can borrow their gear? Well, I lived in North Richland Hills at the time, and I lived right down the street from a fire station, and I just – Walked in there one day, just some snot-nosed punk kid. Like, hey, can I borrow your gear? I need to go to fire school. And they're like, well, you can't have ours, but, hey, our administration office is right down here. Why don't you go talk to them? And they gave me a guy's number. He was over training. And I went to go talk to that guy, and he, like, looked at me like, I can't believe you're asking me to use our gear. And then he said, "Um, give me about a week. And he let me borrow his gear. And... um, and kind of a pretty cool piece to the entire story. So I went to, to fire school from August to December, uh, Monday through Friday. And then I'd, I'd go to Spring Creek Barbecue at night from 6 p.m. to close. 
except for Friday nights, I would take that off. And then on Saturday, I would work 4 a.m. to about 2-ish um, in the afternoon. And then I would work 9 a.m. to 10 or 11 p.m. on Sunday, so I'd get 40 hours. Well, Spring Creek, they had like a tuition reimbursement program. And as long as you pass, they would pay you 10 cents for every A. I mean, for every hour you worked for an A. And uh, so I was real excited. You know, I've never seen a check with a comment in it before. And so I made five fifteen an hour. And so I, w- I went up to him after he got paid that day. And we used to actually get paper checks. Not, it wasn't just automatic, you know, put in your account. There's no bank draft. Direct deposit. Yeah, I don't even feel old enough to say that. But I do remember, though, the – I mean, I was so happy and, like, excited. And, and I tried to hand Tommy that check. And he's like, no, 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 what is that? I said, it's the money. I, I want to pay you back. And he said, Merry Christmas. Wow. And I was like, what? Uh, no, no. And then he just walked off, you know, and I'm like, what was your manager's name? Tommy money. Great guy. huh? Sounds oh, absolutely. Like a, geez, yeah. It sounds like an amazing guy. Good name. Yep. Tommy, <laughs> Tommy money. It's so, uh, he lived up to it. Should have been a rapper. <laughs> yeah. Having such a rough upbringing and, uh, against all odds, you showed your character. You showed your character, uh, at such a young age, working three jobs and uh, and following your dream to become a EMT and and working towards your, your fire, um, did did you ever expect to go into this field? <clears throat> so my mom told me um, when I was about ten years old is when I remember seeing backdraft and I was like, man, I, I'm going to be a fireman. And she told me, sweetie, your mind will change <clears throat> so many times before you you know turn eighteen. When I was 18 years old, I walked across the stage and I graduated fire academy. And, uh, you know, I did invite her to that graduation. So, but I knew once I started the process of EMT school, um, I I knew I'm going to be a fireman. I just didn't know when. Um, I attested a handful of places uh, after EMT and fire, about six different places, and it wasn't working out for me. So there was a moment in time that I did think, well, I'm going to have to find a way to get my paramedic before, you know, I can get hired somewhere. But I did, when I set my mindset, when I set my mind on something, I usually am pretty determined and won't really stray from the plan. Sounds like it. Um, you walked across that stage. Can you describe that feeling once you, you did it? You got, you worked your ass off and you're talking about working three jobs. There's, I know a lot of people that have a hard time even working one job. Um, and you're putting yourself through, you know, all of this, and you're learning new skills and new trades, and when you walk across that stage, can you describe that? <clears throat> it, it was probably one of the first times in my life that I was, like, genuinely, like, excited for something, or, like, I was, you know, like, I felt like I, I accomplished something. You know, I mean, I played sports, and we made it to, like, semifinals and quarterfinals in football, and... I got to run in the Texas relays and, you know, I qualified for state at one point and, but it, nothing really compared to, yeah, when I walked across there, I mean, I knew there was still a little uncertainty cause I hadn't got a job yet, but it was kind of the first step. Absolutely. Once you did that, were you, was your family there when you, when you walked across the stage? The only family that I really talked to or involved with is, <laughs> You gotta look, you know, bear with me here, but it's my mom's mom's sister's ex husband. Okay. So, really, my mom's aunt. So, I guess it'd be like my great aunt 
Um, at, but at the time we had, we had spoke to both of them and, uh, I invited them down, but both my grandparents are dead and I don't, you know, like I said, I don't know who my real dad is and my stepdad, he died in like 2014 and my mom, she, you know, I invited her. All right. After you graduated, watched that stage, where did you go to apply? I applied in Fort Worth twice. I applied in Kennedale, Garland, Denton, and I know I'm missing one, and uh, then Waxahachie. But not Dallas Fire right off? I didn't have enough college hours. Okay. They gave me college credit for EMT and fire, but I think I only had like 30-something hours, and you have to have 45 to get hired. Okay. You're close. So where did you get hired up? Heard on eventually. Waxahachie. Okay. How was that when you first got going in there? I, I mean, I was pretty stoked. Okay. I mean, I was like on top of the world. For the listener, Waxahachie south of Dallas. Uh, it's uh, it's it is like probably like twenty minutes south, right? 20, 30 minutes. Yeah, twenty thirty minutes south of Dallas. So, how long did you work there? About a little over two years. Okay. What was your favorite part? Once you got there and you actually saw the family, that family, was it what you thought it would be? For the most part. I mean, there were some, some curveballs in there. But, yeah, they, they, they took me in immediately. What kind of curveballs? <clears throat> kind of the pranks or kind of the, you know, probably stuff that families really go through, you know, but. You didn't experience that. I wasn't, yeah. yeah I wasn't expecting know. it because I hadn't experienced it before. You got that red family and they, uh, they, <clears throat> they start giving it to you. Oh, yeah. So when you were working there, you're getting this experience. And you and did you did you know you would eventually move, try to go to another agency? I did. Uh, my goal and hope, they got a new fire chief now, so I guess I can say this, but. Um, I, I did know that Dallas was kind of the end goal, but um, I knew I needed to go to paramedic school. I knew they would pay me to go to paramedic school. And so, yeah, I did my, got my probationary year out of the way, and then they put me through paramedic school. And then the next year I, I applied in Dallas. Why Dallas? Why, you said that was the end goal, but what, what drew you to that? Just, uh, just big city. You know, I, I didn't want to, and this is no – um, you know, like jab at them by any means. Uh, but I didn't want to just wear the t-shirt, you know, I wanted to actually do the job and I know Dallas offered, uh, you know, the diversity, uh, even in the city, right? Like if you want high rises, you have high rise. If you want smaller houses, we've got the areas with smaller houses, you want apartment fires. I mean, they have that to offer. And, uh, I just, that's <clears throat> the, um, the ability you know, opportunities to promote, uh, the different specialties that were available. Um, I mean, I saw that as the opportunities were, were endless. Yeah. That's, that's also a draw for the PD as well. When we have people apply here, because everything you just listed, that's what Dallas police has as well. We, they have all these different units and just specialties. And you could, you know, you mentioned the apartment fires versus the, the fires that are on the, the larger property. I mean, th- everything's there. And then you have the, all the, there's enough, you know, you know how many medical emergencies are in, uh, are in this city. So when did you hire on? I got hired on the fire department in 2009. Okay. Where'd you first go? Since I was already certified, I had a, 
I had to go do 10 shifts or 20 shifts on a truck. And I did that up at station 20 and then I did 10 shifts down at, uh, on engine 40. And then I got my first assignment at, at station 19. Okay. Where, where is that at? It's in East Dallas. Okay. Is it around, is it North of 30? It is. Okay. Is, is that kind of like a, a field training deal where you have to work different stations and kind of do a couple shifts over here and a couple shifts over there? Yeah, they try to keep your, at least the, the first part of the training, they pr- keep it pretty consistent and try to keep you with the same officer and similar crews and things like that to give you a chance to kind of loosen up and them to get to know you and then, you know, the consistency of, of them trying to teach you the job. What was the culture like there in that in that fire station? And did you, I want to, you worked in different, you, through your career, you've worked at different ones, you've been around different folks, but the culture that was actually in the East Dallas Fire Station, what was that like? Culture was, I mean was a blessing it I mean it, it'd be a mystery to me today to see what my life would look like if I hadn't uh if I hadn't gone there those guys were you know I knew I had to keep my head down my mouth shut my ears open you know and do my job I know I had to be the first one to work and the last one to quit um but they truly took me in as family uh, they took me in immediately uh, I just I became a sponge and I think they picked up on that pretty quick that I was willing to learn anything that they were willing to teach me. Training was a part of what they did. Uh, it was just kind of a part of their daily routine. It wasn't something that had to be forced or kind of like push it out of them. The lieutenant there, he, I mean, took so much time and effort and just kind of like poured into me and not just about being a good firefighter, but how to, you know, be with how to love crystal you know better and how to be a good good person and have integrity and because i would always i was resorting back to what i knew and i would you know like throw stories out there like i was cool you know i told this person off or i you know i treated this person you know like crap on a run or something like that and he would just like casey that that's not that's not what we do that's not who we are who is that uh, lieutenant brian corley is he still active? He's not. Okay. No, he retired a couple years ago, but we still, we still keep in contact though. Uh, he told me, you know, cause he would always, all I want to do is ride the right side of the engine and the uh, right side of the engine. That's who gets the nozzle on fires. And that's really all I wanted to do. And he was not okay with that. He wanted me to drive and he would move my gear and put it up front and he would leave his helmet up there. And that's kind of how they identify rank in the fire department. And, I, you know, I would kind of argue a little bit like, Lou, just let me be a, a rookie. Like, let me be a kid. You know, like I want to do this. And he was like, you know, if I teach you to think like an officer, help you make decisions that you can reasonably justify. I don't ever have to worry about you making decisions on the ambulance or when I'm off or anything like that. And let it be known he did that to every firefighter that came through there. And so basically we, we didn't all think the same, but we all strategized the same. We'd all, you know, we, we already knew kind of where each other were coming from. So did you have to go through a basic Academy with Dallas? I did. I went through like an abbreviated version. I think it was uh, eight weeks. And how many people were in that with you? Nine, nine other people. And do they send everybody just to different stations and spread you guys all the way out? Or did you have another new guy there with you? No, they they just scatter us across the city. So you're the one new guy at your station. Mm-hmm. 
that's got to be intimidating. I'm it. Yeah. So you feel that uh, that lieutenant making you do a variety of uh, different jobs made you a more well-rounded? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he. Yeah, he challenged me quite a bit, <clears throat> but it was definitely for the. I mean, for the better. Yeah. Well, that leadership. It sounds like it began that leadership, and he. You said that's how he was with everybody. He established a culture of looking at the bigger picture as opposed to going to just just a, within six months going to X amount of calls or or uh, he tried to lay the foundation and road work for you to have a long career with different paths. Right. And, and just like for an example, it it was just little things like, you know, on the ambulance, you don't really get to fight fire here but you still are needed in case that there's a victim inside or a case a firefighter goes down the ambulance is already on scene and you can transport them to hospital well they don't teach you in rookie school to you know five inch hose it when it's full you know you can't drive over it otherwise it'll break and then that's the water supply that's feeding the fire engine that's giving the firefighters inside the water to put out the fire and so just thinking about little things about not getting blocked in by that hose for just in case and there may be several fires in a row that you, you a fireman doesn't get hurt or they don't have to go to the hospital but it's just that one time and there'd be countless times that people you know not at their own fault you know because if we're not taught and we don't really think about it then we're not going to know but it's just when he would help us think through things like pretty methodically it was just little stuff like that that um it really started to add up over time or like even on motor vehicle accidents, you know, the ambulances, we would park inside, you know, closer like to the wall where the engine and trucks would be a little bit further, further out, you know what I mean? So our little work zone was a little bit more protected where others, or if I wouldn't have had that conversation, you know, I may have just pulled up in front of the wrecked car or whatever, and just get out. True leadership there. The other, uh, your coworkers, your family there, were they fairly young too? No. Okay. What, how did they treat you when you showed up? <clears throat> Other than the pranks and the, you're already grinning, but how, how was that for you? <clears throat> so I was a rookie. You know, I, I knew I had to earn my role. I knew I had to gain their, their respect. But they, that's what I was alluding to earlier, like, man, they, they truly took me in and they would talk to me about like my finances. I I mean, one of the guys, he said, Hey, do you put into your 401k? And I was like, no, you know, every, you know, during rookie school, everybody comes in there, ask you for money and then you got to get benefits and all this stuff. And which now, I mean, we get played pretty well, but it's still like everybody coming in there and kind of you know, inundating you with money. I was like, no, I don't need to worry about that. You know, I'm 22 years old, but he, you know, put in the number to the phone and called. He said, here, talk to this guy. And I'm like, no, 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 uh, Donnie, Donnie, no. And he said, just put in 25 bucks a paycheck. And then, it, you know, it's really a percentage, but he said, if you need $25 next paycheck, come ask me, I'll give you the $25. Then he showed me his phone in the account and I'm not going to put his business out there, but it, it was, you know, well over $100,000 that was in there. And he said, that's from $25 a paycheck for my entire career. And he had only a couple years left. And he said, if you need 25 bucks next paycheck, come ask me. 
and I made, you know, I talked to the guy, I did it. And then I forgot that I didn't put it in there, you know? Yeah, you're right. There's so many, uh, we got associations showing up. You got to pay this insurance, you get in the dental, the, the vision, everything adds up. And I was the same way. I didn't, hell, I didn't want to put anything in a 401k because I wasn't looking past the hood of the hood of the car. I wasn't looking down the road at, um, at, you know, a long career. That's man. That's great. It sounds like a, it sounds like a hell of a culture over there at that station 19. So what the veterans, they, they had been there a while. What was mental health look that look like whenever you got there as far as taking care of yourself, self care was that talked about, and we're going to get into why I'm asking this now later on, but I just kind of want to set the tone uh, of how it was back then. <clears throat> it really wasn't talked about, um, but I think some people were good at, at it and others were not. Again, that same lieutenant worked out every single day. Uh, he was very big on his showers. Like he – and he would allow us, we, you know, not a lot of us took him up on it, but he would tell us if, if it's anything basically but a fire or like an extrication or something like we can, you know, we'll make this run with three people. You just stay there and enjoy your shower, like take take time and get a good shower. And he would spend a lot of time in the shower uh, and, and he ate really well. And, uh, you know, he prayed every morning and he went to church and, you know, he wouldn't push any of that stuff on us, but he he damn sure modeled it. He, yeah, he modeled it, but, um, but no, we never really talked about it. And at one point I actually went up to one of the crew members and I asked him, uh, Hey, why aren't we talking about suicide? Because everybody, I mean, there was a, not everybody, there was a lot of people up in the Northeast that were taking their lives back then. And they told me that, I don't know, but we're not really affected by that here. And being at a, a specialty, station i thought man if like these guys i mean we're kind of the cream of the crop like if they don't care about it i mean and they've been on a long time who am i like i guess i shouldn't really worry about it either and then i just went on about you know my business you just fell in line yep basically just yeah did what they did do you think that um him pushing that shower time was more for a time for of reflection and and to decompress probably uh, but he, or was he just playing with himself? He was not doing that. <clears throat> he, uh, cause it wasn't so much the time that was in the shower with the water on you. He always had these particular sandals and he would put this towel on the ground and, you know, he might like pluck his a little bit. I mean, he would measure his eyebrows or he would like fix his hair and he didn't really have much. And he would sound like the SWAT guys. No, that's, that's what I'm I was just thinking. <laughs> Um, so a lot of it was just, yeah, he may have been, yeah, doing some self-reflecting and the other stuff was just kind of something to do while he was doing that. I think it's inappropriate to bring up SWAT hair with the Claggetts in the office. Yeah. Um, I, Steve I, has beautiful I, hair. He, he does have very beautiful hair. At what point you come from Waxahachie, which is a smaller town and you get it, you wanted it, you, you asked for it, you got it. You got the big city of Dallas. At what point did you just start working this city and go? Holy shit! This is a violent ass city, and there's a there is more to do here than I imagined. Was there any particular calls that you went out on that you were just that surprised you, or just kind of your level of maturity or skill set 
uh, in life experience that just kind of rocked you that you can remember early on? Yeah, so I got to 19s in July 7, 2010, and it was just, I don't remember the exact day, but it was a couple of shifts after that that we had just got there in the morning, and I was on the ambulance that day, and <clears throat> we had responded just south of 30, around the corner from Fair Park, and uh, yeah, guy's head was basically, he was found dead in the backyard with his head squished like with a rock, and then I thought, man, this is some, I mean, this is a real deal here. You know, and looking around like I was going to see the person who did it, you know, but there wasn't there wasn't anybody around. Probably glad he wasn't there. You know, yeah. I, yeah. Did you notice a change in yourself as far as, you know, um, Dottie had talked about before when she came on with her and Steve? And I know she doesn't want to talk in this one, but compartmentalizing what you see and what you experience. How did that process look for you as far as just having your own? way of compartmentalizing it and packing it away I, I think for me on the job it looked like it, it looked really good and it looked like I was really good at it um, but I guess with anything else in life if you've done the same thing over and over and over again we do get good at it and I I ended up learning down the road that that's basically how I made it for a really long time is I didn't really spend a lot of time in the moment uh, focusing on it like even the the guy you know in the backyard um, basically there's not a lot we do there, right? Um, we show up, we prove, you know, we have to, to run a, run an EKG, you know, to prove that, that, that it's dead. And then we, we do the report and then move clear up and then get the next run. Uh, we didn't spend a lot of time sitting there trying to like, you know, dwell on it. Um, and I guess I can add that my first five years on, I averaged about a thousand hours, like overtime. So I was constantly working i think that adds up i did it one time like three to four months extra on the job and uh but i think i was using work to for one avoid going home because i knew when i went home you know i I turned into a monster and so at least at work i could kind of vent to you know some of the patients or you know it seemed like every shift we'd find like one person and kind of take it out on them and then rotate around that way nobody felt really targeted but I don't really feel like there was any particular run uh, that that really shook me, and and I'm not saying that I promised to be macho. Um, yeah, I, I'm not saying that. You know, like I wasn't affected because obviously I was. But really, um, one of the when I started going to therapy, one of the hardest things for me to do is getting back in touch with my emotions. I was so good at just cutting them off that I didn't really feel, which looks really good on the job, but it looks terrible, you know, when you go home. You think you had to do a lot of that growing up too? I, I think that's where I learned it. And, you know, cause the people in the hotel, some of them would, you know, I, w- I would start to get close to them, but then they'd move away or a teacher, they might become like, like a mentor to me or like I'd be getting really close to them and then the school year would be over or, you know, um, th- there was just different people that, would there were there was no again no consistency in in who was going to be there and so i was basically just like well i can't rely on anybody else but i, I know i can rely on myself what was home like life you you uh i know you married your high school sweetheart and you said you just kind of touched on you went home you become a monster can you describe where you were at in your marriage and how how that looked at that time when you were at 19 <clears throat> so that's where i ended up getting married um, not at the station, 
but during my time there, I got married on uh, 11, 11, 11, and I'm the other, I'm the jerk that gets married on Veterans Day, and I'm not a veteran. Sorry, veterans. Um, I tried to push it off to 12, 12, 12, but my wife, easy, she was, easy dates to remember. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that was nice, and it was a Friday night too. So I thought that was, you know, a little ironic, but um, I we were together for about eight years before seven years before we ended up getting married and uh i always said you know i want her to be self-sufficient i want her to finish school and i kept coming up with all these different reasons why but ultimately it boiled down to you know i was scared i was scared of making that commitment and i didn't want to be trapped like because i didn't want to be another statistic i didn't want to be another divorce and i knew or i believe that you know i i'm an a-hole like I'm a jerk by nature and that's just who I am. And I say stuff at the most inopportune time. And, um, you know, that, that's who I was and that's who I believed. And so I really was thrown off the fact that why is this woman like still with me? Like, I don't understand. Cause I mean, her family was way better off than mine was. Um, I, I even, I was with her for two and a half years before she ever even learned that I live in that hotel. And the only reason why she found out is because she asked my, or my little brother asked her for a ride home from football practice when I was at the fire station. Do you think not having, not having someone to model what a relationship should look like uh, contributed to, to your behavior? Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. Now I, I don't say that because there are people, I don't say that in a derogatory manner because there <coughs> were people in my life that I do think that like showed me what a man was and showed me what it, you know, looked like to be responsible, what it looked like, you know, to love someone. Uh, but yeah, when, but I didn't get to live with them or I didn't get to be with around them all, be around them all the time. So I really couldn't translate that into my own, my own personal life. It's almost like learning like our mess ups and like who we are and like, oops, I, or what we're looking for, like in a woman or something like that. And I feel like women are probably the same way with us. I mean, they've got to learn what, what they like and what they dislike and things. And, uh, I, again, I, I don't think I would let, um, I, I think that, yeah, I was a, a young little cocky whippersnapper that, you know, I feel like quite a bit of women would talk to me. But I, I would not. I would not pursue them. I, I wouldn't let them in because, again, I was afraid of of them leaving or, or being pushed down. And so for her, it was. Um, I, I knew she was different, but I didn't know why. Do you think you were trying to maybe there was a little bit of self like sabotage, and you were trying maybe trying to drive her away? A hundred percent. I wouldn't say drive her away, but because uh, she would tell me like good the good things about me like she would say hey this is why i'm because i would ask her straight up like hey, why, why are you with me like did I you believe her when she told you that no no i would ask her like why why do you stay here what what do you see in me and she would tell me and she tells me the same answers today but it was it was just kind of hard to believe you felt you weren't worthy yeah but things changed a little bit when she did learn i was in that hotel and she didn't uh I mean, honestly, when I met her, I pulled up to her house. You know, it's a two-story brick home. There's a Lexus in the driveway and, like, all, you know, I, again, all those are materialistic things, right? But coming from nothing, to me, that was like, you know, she's like 5'9", blonde, a cheerleader, you know. I'm like, 
this ain't gonna last but you know i'm gonna enjoy, enjoy it while you have yeah. it you know but um and that's why i wouldn't let her know where i let where i lived because i knew but when she found out and she stayed um you know it did mean something but then you know i saw that she was hurt because i didn't tell her and then that affected me and i was like whoa normally other people don't affect me and so i was like man so this is this was different what is her name crystal you better say it telling you i have I've had a lot of people and they don't give mentions of folks and they're they'll, they'll be listening i promise misty always talks about the mystique and mystery of uh of uh fire stations can you give the listener a little peek we tried to pull it out of david Lindsay and some other folks and they're kind of you know they're like the masonic lodge trying to get information out of can you give us a little peek about some of the mysteries uh peek behind the curtain in that environment I'll do my best. Um, Don't worry. Nobody listens anyway. <clears throat> it's not Hollywood. So I was a little let down by that. You know, every run that we go on is not that true emergency. And, and I'm not downplaying. It's not backdraft. <laughs> right. Yeah. Rescue me. Was Rescue that? me. Yeah. Rescue me. Yeah. And the reality is, is, you know, we don't get to use those, our training and the skills that we spend months learning and, um, all those, like all the time where, you know, that's where some of our frustration and stuff comes from. Um, I might add that a fire station, although it's a public place, but when you visit a fire station, you're not visiting the fire station, you're visiting somebody's house. And so I just keep that in mind. Um, we might not approach you first, the firemen inside there. Um, but if you shake their hand, look them in the eye, and uh, kind of approach them a little bit, uh, almost like a peace offering almost, then they'll probably talk your ear off. Um, there's a lot of pranks that happen um, behind, the, behind the curtain, I guess. Um, wrestling for dishes. Talk, talk about some of the pranks. I want to go back to the, just real quick. Just spill some. That's weird yeah. that you want to know about yeah. pranks, Joe. Yeah, I want to see how they hold up to the ones that we've, we've done. So there's not a whole lot that are really coming to mind right now. All right. But... Um, at least not ones you can share. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why um, are you so red right now? Well, I'm just yeah. trying to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> Gallows humor is, uh, happens a lot kind of behind the scenes. Uh, so if you're ever around, you know, the fireman or you're visiting, you know, don't think, don't take things personal. Uh, the rumor mill is, you know, about as bad as what I can imagine, like a high school cheerleader locker room would be like. Uh, so close to DPD. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, Similarities. we are storytellers, but we won't let, you know, a lie get in the good way, you know, in the way of a good story. I think the saying goes, uh, we pay for our own meals. We cook our own meals. Uh, we pay for Wi-Fi, cable. Um, but despite all the, the pranks and, and people poking and, and, you know, messing with each other, when the bell hits, you know, we, we get serious and, and, you know, we act professional and we we take care of business you have to act as a team right so when you go you talk about everybody you cook your own meals you kind of quickly identify who's the best at it and who just sucks because it's some like if you volunteer to go cook one of the meals people are like oh shit no we don't, we don't want him doing it so each station and shift kind of its own culture and has its own way of doing things uh sometimes yeah the person that's not the best cook will volunteer oh. but most of the time I mean, they all kind of do it differently, right? Sometimes it's on a rotation. 
Uh, so you get different skill. I mean, different people with different skills and and things. Culinary skills. Others, you know, they they'll either order out or uh, sometimes they'll like designate like a person that, hey, you'll be our kind of our full time cook. So and and there's some perks that that come with that, but get to wear apron. Well, some do wear aprons. Yeah. You know, you got to. We have to stay clean. Yeah, right. Hairnet and just the apron. Yeah, I always see the fire firefighters going to the uh, grocery store and they they pull up in a fire truck and they're taking up like a hundred lanes or a hundred parking spots and they go in and they're coming out with two basketfuls of of groceries to take back to take back home basically. So some fire stations have a lot of people in them, right? And uh, normally they park right up front by the front door. Yeah, you know. Um, that's in case we get a call. We're not trying to just park in the way, or we're not lazy either. We, it says fire lane. It's yeah, there for you. Yeah, it's that's there right. for you. It's parking lane for y'all. <clears throat> it's marked all the time, right? Um, and we really do get cats out of trees. Yeah, I've never seen too many cat skeletons hanging in trees. So it's funny. It's like <laughs> I don't think they really die out there. We get calls to, to go get. They're cats very successful. Out of trees. Yeah, yeah. No you, hey, you're very efficient <clears throat> at, at your job. So I want to get into the the type of training that you've had. Um, can you list some of the trainings that you, you've you've been on a while? But can you talk about some of the trainings? Yeah. So obviously, fire training. <clears throat> um, I'm trained as a paramedic. Uh, when I was at 19s, they're they're one of two of the specialty stations for for USAR, which is Urban Search and Rescue. So there, we kind of have to be like high angle rescue, um, like structural collapse technicians, like trench rescues, medical specialist, um, like some extra training in, in vehicle extrications. And I've also done some boat operations, swift water rescue training and stuff, things like that. Um, also some of the, uh, mental health trainings I've had is like through group crisis intervention or safety planning intervention for suicide. I'm an assist trainer. Um, I've been to a whole bunch of like peer support trainings, I'm a, like a certified EAP through the labor assistance for, for professionals. And then recently I just became an IAFF peer support instructor. Nice. So I want you to describe some of the, the types of training to a layman like myself. Uh, you know, Johnny, uh, at legends fit, he's a, he's a Dallas firefighter. He listens to these and, um, he's, he lets me know whenever an episode sucks and doesn't suck. And he's very well aware you're coming on and kind of describe, like he was explaining to me little things like the tempered wood burns a different way. And the chemicals that are in uh, treated wood, you know, bef- after 1960, little things like that. Is that some of the instruction and uh, training y'all, y'all get? Uh, I wouldn't say as a department, uh, we get things like that, but we, you know, we have different backgrounds and we're people too, like on our days off. And so we come across different people with different backgrounds, different trades and things like that. So we do have people that are involved in, in the hazmat world, or we do have people that are involved like in different building construction, which is something I feel like we should talk about more Yeah. Um, to, because inevitably learning that kind of stuff and how the flow pass of, of, fire and you know smoke reading classes and stuff like that will can really you know help save your butt especially when stuff's going bad so you get you have a pretty good training program there the fire yeah we're getting a lot better with with the training division and, and things like that we're starting to look outside the fire department 
to kind of bring in outside perspectives and, and again, utilize other people's skills, knowledge, and skills and knowledge and their abilities. There are a lot of, uh, so the PD, we, uh, there's a lot of outside training put on either by federal, federal agencies or just other, uh, local entities that we pay for ourselves. A lot of the firefighters, do they do the same thing as far as paying out of their own pocket to go get additional specialized training? We do. We've got a lot of guys that, yeah, they invest a lot of time and money themselves. And that's because of that particular training or skill that the department doesn't offer, right? Correct. Okay. So before all this training, was it more of a, you know, trial by error and learning from your mistakes? Some of the mistakes from like the ones that have come before us, you know, one of the things after any kind of line of duty death, right, there'll be a whole bunch of NIOSH and, and uh, OSHA and things like that. They'll all kind of come in and uh, in- investigate those, you know, because we try to learn from like what are some things that went wrong or, or what are some things that we could do different to prevent that potentially from happening in the past. But I think on a smaller scale, most of the stations and shifts are having those conversations within, you know, their own closed walls. Uh, some of the, one of the fire stations I was at, I mean, they, we built or yeah, we built our own like roof prop. And so anybody knew that we had, or, or somebody that wasn't necessarily um, experienced with, with truck work. Cause you could have on 20 years or, or 15 years and you've never ridden a truck one with the ladder on top. And so you've never had to go to a roof and cut a hole. And what you don't want them to do is bury that chainsaw all the way down and start cutting through rafters. You know, they're just going to town and then the roof falls in and you can potentially fall in the smoke of the fire. And so it's just little things like that. I mean, we, another thing that we built at the fire station was, um, it it was, uh, it's called the Denver drill where basically it it was from a line of duty death up in, in Denver, Colorado, that it was a fireman that died in an office building and the windowsill was so high off the ground and things. 100 firefighters actually touched that, uh, fireman and couldn't get him out the window, you know, and he inevitably perished. But, uh, so firefighters, we, we take turns and stuff practicing on different techniques and different ways, both accessing them from the outside and accessing them from inside the building. Um, but not all fire stations, you know, uh, invest the time and effort but a lot of them do what's like just the but also uh, the individual has to have a thirst for knowledge of wanting to get better and 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 as opposed to just taking what the requirement is when you you know and the 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 updates that you have to do um so to be a dallas firefighter do you have to take uh have like quarterly trainings to keep up with uh to keep up with the, the city's requirements or the state's requirements yeah so we have to do a lot a lot of training because we have to do continuing education courses for our firefight for our firefighter certification yeah then we also have to do it for our paramedic certification as well what commissions that what's the entity that commissions that it's like, like ours is t cole what is what is y'all's uh like dishes they call it like department of state health texas health texas department of state health services wow that's a mouthful. So yeah, you see, I, I want to. That's what I want to learn about. I mean, it's that's interesting because you know we hear about we know T Cole and all this, and but we don't. I, didn't, I never heard of. I never heard of dishes. So fascinating. Yeah. You kind of chronicled your career, life, 
uh, wasn't expecting the uh, as much in the live story, but it actually makes sense to me and started maturing you very quickly to get in this profession, the first responder world. You're just out saving lives. You made a career of saving lives and serving. But I'm going to take you back to a date in 2017. I have a piece of audio uh, that I want to play for the listener to kind of add context and and kind of kick this uh, kick this part of the story off. Okay. All right. See that uh, this is from an incident May first, twenty seventeen, over on Reynolds Street, which is in uh, South Dallas. It's uh, just south of I thirty, close to Dolphin Road. You're up. Just kind of walk us through. Uh, tell the listener. Just paint them a picture of this day, the initial call, and the response. All right. Yeah. So it was a Monday morning, <clears throat> about eleven o'clock in the morning. Just a regular day. We were checking out the ambulance. I was on the ambulance that day, and <clears throat> we were checking out our gear, and we actually had some guests show up at the fire station, and they were going to talk to us about the church that they were a part of. Uh, it wasn't required that we sit in there, but you know we were going to be respectful. And then right as we were sitting down, a call came in for a gunshot wound and uh, the, with the engine and the ambulance. Um, we got in the ambulance and <clears throat> took off that way like we do and on the way there we had comments that read that it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound and there was also another comment that said there was a male laying in the front yard with blood on his face <clears throat> uh, we kind of take a shortcut to those streets that are right there off dolphin road uh, there's a little uh, back way into those you know to improve our response time um 
And so as I pull up, I'm, I'm actually facing, <clears throat> if I would have kept driving, I would have literally been able to drive in the driveway of like our, our, our drill tower right there. Uh, but 3125 Reynolds is actually a vacant lot. And there actually is like overgrown grass there, you know, but we're looking for a guy with blood on his face and, and then Will ends up pointing, uh, like straight ahead, like, Hey, there he is. And so I kind of pulled the ambulance up on a cross street called Owenwood and I, I, I angled the ambulance away from the person laying on the ground because it was reported that he shot himself and Will rolled the window down and told him, Hey man, put your hands above your head. And he, he complied and he's like moving his hands um, over his head, but he's like kind of shaking them over his head, but he looking back now he was pointing. <clears throat> and so then I ended up pulling the ambulance. I, I just pulled up a little bit past him. So the back of the ambulance was even with him. Will gets out and tends to the patient about the time, you know, and then I get out with the radio and the computer. And as I'm making my way around the back of the ambulance, Will comes running around the back of the ambulance and says, Hey man, we got to get out of here there's a guy with an AR and he kind of points like through the ambulance. And so it's been reported that the, that the suspect, he had been staying with a friend. Um, he just been released from prison and a person from church was allowing him to stay there. Uh, and the suspect gets into a fight with his girlfriend. And when she walks outside, she hears two gunshots. And later we found out that the suspect, you know, shot his roommate and then he shot his dog. And then so the girlfriend calls 911 and she says that her boyfriend shot himself. And then she repeated it again. Her boyfriend shot himself. <clears throat> After that, the suspect, uh, he ended up knocking out like a small pane in the window. And there was a neighbor that heard some commotion outside. And so he came to look, kind of see what was going on. And the shooter ended up shooting him. And then the neighbor, after he was shot, he took off running down the street. And then the suspect shot him again in the back. And the second time he was shot in the back, the, the neighbor went down. And then the neighbor, he actually called his brother. And he said, uh, hey, man, or, you know, I don't know really what it was said, but basically it, was, it alluded to come over here. Um, I've been shot, but be careful because the shooter's looking to shoot more people. And this was according to him. After that, the suspect came out of his house, walked across the street, and was kind of standing on the side of the house when we pulled up. So then, yeah, he was hiding on the side of the house. And so Will and I are now behind the, the ambulance. <clears throat> and when he tells me, hey, we got to get out of here, you, you know, we're trying to look very quickly, you know, to our left is like across the street and it's a corner house. That seems like way too far when somebody has a long run long gun and then to run the other way it's like you're on the same side of the street that's not really a good idea but we know that we're hiding behind a hollow fiberglass box so we're not safe the engine's about a block behind us and you know they're starting to to change their sirens and honk the horn and, and stuff to try to kind of like disrupt him or, or you know disturb distract him, him. Yeah. yeah in some kind of way so yeah just to kind of to recap right so will and i are we're standing behind an ambulance. There's a guy walking towards us with the with the gun, with, with the long black rifle is what I know at the time, but we learned later it was an AR. On his shoulder, he's looking down the 
barrel of it, um, very calmly, very methodically walking down the sidewalk. He never ran. He never, you know, changed his pace that I could see. And then we still have a, a patient that was laying there on the ground next to us. So when you see this, this person walking with a rifle, it, it sounds like something that's kind of like out of a movie. I mean, I'm imagining it, and I'm sure the listeners are going to imagine the same thing. He's walking, and he's looking down the, the barrel. You had a, you had a person that was down. You go from rescue mode to survival mode very quickly. What went through your mind, if you can remember, at that point? It might not be appropriate for the podcast, but basically kind of like, oh, crap. Um, but, again, we, I mean, there wasn't a lot of um, – I mean, there really wasn't a time to think. It was more of seconds, just matter of seconds, just just kind of reacting, you know. And Will, you know, telling me, "Hey, go get in the ambulance because we got to leave." Um, it, it almost seemed like he didn't understand, or it wasn't computing to him. Because when I walked up the side of the ambulance to try to go get in the cab, uh, that's when the guy shot. You know, he took a shot at us, and then so I ran back, and I'm sure he could see, you know, because we kind of feed off of each other. And normally, Will is very, very cool, calm, collected. You know, he doesn't get rattled. Um, but we were obviously rattled that day, you know. Of but, course. Um, but we're still trying to have a conversation, like, and kind of arguing, like, uh, like we have to get out of here. Go get in the cab. Well, the problem is, so you, you're trying to get out of there, but you have a – you do have an objective, which is a down person. Was it hard to – break away from that objective because you're there to save a person that's down. But now you're in a position where you have to save each other. You have to save yourself from a threat that y'all usually you don't encounter somebody with a long rifle in, in, in that kind of circumstance. Right. Again, I don't want to sound macho or anything, but I, I honestly, it wasn't really a choice. It wasn't a, a conscious thought or effort. Like, Hey, sorry, man. Like the, the patient, sorry, dude, I, I can't take care of you today. I, I got to go. I mean, it, it was, I mean, basically the guy on the ground became extra. I mean, he was, he was just there. Like we were, we knew we had to get out of there and we knew we, he wasn't coming with us. Self-preservation <laughs> kicked in. Um, you know, you're under attack. So that, that takes precedent. It's actually interesting after like after the call, you know, I was like down the street a little bit and one of the police officers came up to me and he was like, man, are you okay? And he put his arm around me and I kind of smirked and looked at him and he was kind of taken by that. And he's like, why, why are you smirking? I was like, I'm fine. I ran. I wasn't shot. He said, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, no, I mean, let me make it known to you. I carry a gun every single day. And if I show up to a routine call and then someone just pulls a gun out and fires at me, he said, it's not like the wild wild west i just pull my gun out and just start firing back he's like brother i gotta back up retreat kind of regroup and then pull my gun out you know and take care of business it's you know which kind of made me feel a little bit better and he's like and i trained with my weapon i very comfortable with my weapon he's like but you're talking and i think that's what you're bringing up that mindset shift but it, it was it was just automatic like it there wasn't really a there wasn't time to think and where were you at when you heard the first shots I was on like basically I was passing the box like where the box meets the cab. Okay. Um, yeah, trying to reach for the the handle of the 
of the ambulance. And could you see um, could you see Will at that time? Will was behind the ambulance still. Okay, he was still behind the ambulance, and you heard the first shot. Then what happened? I ran back to the the back of the ambulance, and then we were kind of looking back and forth. I mean, looking back and forth, like kind of going back and forth about. I, I can't make it to the cab. I don't know what to do. And he said, "We we got to get out of here." So at that point, was it just one shot, or was it a series of shots? No, just one. Just one shot, and then, and then what happened after you were at the back of that cab? He said, "We we gotta we gotta get out of here." And I was like, "All right, I'm gonna try again. Get in the back of the ambulance." And again, it wasn't a conscious thought, but I guess what I was thinking is I was just gonna get in the cab and maybe just duck and you know pull the the transmission lever like all the way down and just kind of push the gas with my foot or something like that but um when i tried to go get in the cab the second time i was able to actually touch the handle of the cab at that time but he the suspect was a lot closer then um i mean right there at the driveway it was just a little bit past the front of the ambulance and then he shot a you know took another shot and then that's whenever like things really started to change because Will's inside the ambulance and now I don't know basically are we about to play merry-go-round around this ambulance but knowing or thinking like all he has to do is just start shooting through the ambulance and he can shoot me so this was 2017 right which is a year after you guys did some pretty heroic stuff on July 7th of 2016 we'd already put into place some things with you guys having extra armor and things like that correct we hadn't actually – I think the 780 cars, they're like our EMS supervisors. I, I'm I'm not the best at, like, timelines and things. I want to say either the battalion chiefs or, like, the EMS supervisors had the ballistic vest at that time, but they were specific to those vehicles because the thought was, I'm, I'm assuming, that those will be used for, like, active shooter incidents. So, like, police will already be there. We can pair up and create that task force and then be able to go in and take care of business. So what were your thoughts, and was there any discussion on the, the fire side of actually giving you guys weapons and arming up anybody in the, the ambulance or the trucks? So my with, – with weapons, my personal thought was it wouldn't have done any good that day because, for one, I don't know that I would have trained with it enough, and then – I feel like I just would have stuck the gun kind of down the side of the ambulance like blindly. And I can tell you today without a doubt that I didn't kill anybody. But if I would have done that, not everybody works during the day in that neighborhood. And so I potentially could have hit somebody that, you know, that was innocent to the entire thing. Um, I do think that there are people that, you know, probably it would have, have benefited, but I don't think for me. And we kind of went back and forth with the ballistic vest stuff. Um, I, I mean, honestly, it, that day I, I don't – I can make it. I got to where the the compartment where we normally keep them in the ambulance. I was able to get to that compartment. I, honestly, I don't know without it being there. Like if, I, if we really would have thought, well, hey, if I just grab this, I can put it on. Because in that moment, again, it, it was just time. Everything we were doing was almost – instantaneous just reactionary whenever you said you you heard the second shot you actually were able to touch the handle and where was will at that time in the back of the ambulance he was in the back of the ambulance was it just another single shot or did was it a was it a volley or did was will hit hit at that point at what point did will get hit 
So <clears throat> I touch the handle and then I go to the back of the ambulance and now I don't know where the shooter is going. And he was a lot closer that time than he was the first time. Well, then I hear two other shots and that the first guy that was shot initially, his, I looked the way of the gunshots and I just see his shirt just is soaked in blood instantaneously. And I learned later he had, the suspect had shot him two times in the, the back of the shoulder blade. While he was down. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, so I just took off. Um, I, and I alluded earlier that I, I, uh, <laughs> Wasn't I ran the Texas relays a little bit and I ran track and I don't it paid off that day I ran the hundred and the two hundred I guess but. you're running four three that day, so where did you run when you when you left the uh, the cab where did you go? I left from the back of the ambulance and mm -hmm. I took off Caddy Corner um, to run behind a house that was across the street because I was trying to keep the ambulance in between kind of him and I. And where, what was the shooter doing at that point? Was he firing? I later came to find out he was okay. uh, because there was a metal fence that was up, like our panel, I guess, was up, and it would look like Swiss cheese. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear any of those shots um, during that time. Um, I didn't look back. I just kept running. And it's, um, it is interesting, though, as odd – you know, as automatic and just reactionary as I was, I do remember running across that, I mean, running across the street, there was a fence that was, you know, between the two houses. And I literally was looking like, which driveway was I going to run up? Because I was trying to figure out which house, you know, had a dog and which one didn't. But I just chose the one on the corner. So you had that auditory exclusion as he was firing at you. I didn't hear anything. Yeah. And I had actually I hadn't had any nightmares or anything about that event until after we were doing the after action and we were kind of standing in the street and kind of going reviewing the the incident and um, you know one of the one of the people that were in that group with me um, he was like had his hands in his pockets and he's like real anxious and he's like kicking just you know and and while I'm telling the story and I keep looking at him and, he, and he's a fireman and i'm like well what's wrong with you and he's like it, it's just mind-blowing that you're okay he's like look at that fence over there and i looked at the fence and i was like i mean i just remember taking this deep breath and this huge like uh you know and i'm not using his name on purpose because i don't want to put any guilt on him right because he didn't right. do it um but it was kind of like that surreal like oh crap moment you know looking at that fence like I was that close. Yeah, because I had no clue. So whenever you go behind the fence, what, you heard, you just heard, the listener just heard the audio of, of the radio traffic. Was that you on the radio? When I called Code Blue and then... What does Code Blue mean? Send police help. Okay. Because <clears throat> I, did, I, did, I wasn't aware. And a lot of the listeners, I'm sure, aren't either. Who else was on the radio talking that you just heard that was that uh, said we have a... Basically, we have a firefighter down. That was me. Well, that was you. Okay. At what point did you know that we had a firefighter down when you when you ran? You were going up that driveway. When did you think know or think that we had a firefighter down? So when I was running, <clears throat> I went up the driveway, and I actually kind of, uh, you know, I made a left, like went behind the house, and then I jumped over the chain link fence and then made a right to go down the 
the alley and there was like an outbuilding right there. And, but about the time that I was jumping over the chain link fence, you know, I heard like a loud yell, like similar to Hollywood, even though I'm, I keep saying this job is not like Hollywood, but, um, it sounded just like that. The, you know, a scream and I was peeking around the building to kind of see where the shooter was at. I could see Will laying there. And about that time, the guy, the, the suspect walks right over the top of Will and then he, he shoots him again. And, uh, you know, and he kind of, Will's arms kind of flail out and, you know, he, he goes limp. And I know in that moment that he's dead. And then the shooter, um, he drops his magazine, you know, like push the button and it falls out and he had another one Velcro to him or something. And he puts it back up. We make eye contact and then he just starts walking towards me. And, uh, but behind the building is when I remember calling for a code blue and telling them like, Hey, uh, you, you know, I think one of the paramedics had been shot. So the engine and ambulance, uh, the in the operations for the fire side is typically on channel one and the ambulances, they usually operate on channel two. Uh, so I couldn't hear, you know, um, Lieutenant Terry and, and engine 19 calling for help. And, and it's interesting. One of the things I was beating myself up over was why did I wait so long to, to call for help? And I mentioned that after action, but the, the after action, um, when we were kind of talking through it, the original guy that was shot, he actually came out and we were able to talk to him. He didn't, he doesn't speak English fluently. And so it was, his English was kind of broken, but he said, um, we were asking him what happened. And he said, you know, when the shooter came up to me, he asked me code blue or code black or something like that. And he said, do you think this is an effing game? You think this is an effing game? And then he, he shoots me two more times. He said, but then I just um, go limp and hold my breath. And then the guy kicked me in my ribs. And then he stepped over me. And then he started shooting the paramedics, which he will never know. But, like, that was such a, like, a relief because I was like, oh, I, I didn't wait so long. Because that audio didn't come out until, or at least I didn't find it. Or it, I think it was actually sent to me. And I can't, it, it was several months after and uh, that guy doesn't know what code blue or code black or anything like that is. And so, man, that really felt good that I did call. The other thing that I felt that I did maybe right was that I don't remember doing was behind that building. When I'm trying to let him know that, hey, this paramedic's been shot, uh, I knew that that 784, that EMS supervisor, had assigned himself to the to the run. But I was telling him, like, hey, stay out of here. Like, don't, don't come in here because – you know, this guy's going to shoot us. Um, but after we made eye contact, <clears throat> I just took off running down the alley and I'm running from like, uh, fence to fence, you know, just like zigzagging down the alley. Is he firing? Is he firing when you're, when he, after you make eye contact and you're running, did he continue to fire? So I didn't hear it. Um, even in the alley, I never saw him. I never saw him again after that. I guess I can say that. And it's kind of a funny part. <clears throat> about it is when I'm running through the alley there was a guy on the other street he was mowing his backyard and it'd be kind of funny to or interesting to go ask that guy what he thought that here's this white guy sprinting down a back alley with probably this oh crap look on his face carrying a radio and a computer you know all I did was kind of like glance over look at him and I, I mean I didn't slow down I just kept running and 
be interesting to kind of hear what but the thoughts were going through his head. That guy lives on Reynolds. He knows how bad it is over there. He's, he's another day to him. So it's constant. When he looks at you, I want to go back to this moment. I don't want I, when he looks at you. You make eye contact. You just saw your partner go down, and you you just said you believed your partner was dead. Did you feel you were you were next? You were about to die. I did. Yeah. And I didn't. I don't think I was focused on me dying in that moment. I I think it was. I remember thinking at least I can say that that I was wrestling with the idea of going back to get him. Like I I need to go back, but. I know if I do right now, like he, he's, he's going to kill me. And then, but then when he looked, we made eye contact. I thought I, I, I got to go. Same thing with the, probably the, the first patient, like, right. I'm next. So you run down an alley and you don't know, I know you say you don't know the shots are, are coming, but they are. Uh, what happened then? What did you get to a point where you stopped? So I slowed down. I didn't stop, but I slowed down at the end of the alley. Uh, when I got to that next cross street, and then I saw a squad car go, go driving by, and uh, I mean I loved seeing that, and so I kind of rounded the house, like kind of bubbled out, if you will, because uh, I thought, you know, well I didn't know if the shooter was going to be standing in the front yard like waiting for me or whatever. I figured if I got out in the middle of the street, I may get shot, but at least the police are going to see me, and then you know they can help me or whatever. But I, so I was running down the middle of the street, um, headed back to go get Will. And I think all I was going to try to do is pick him up, throw him in the floorboard of the ambulance and drive like hell. Um, and there was a there was a squad car that was parked on in the front yard, like next to the ambulance. And he kept using both arms to like wave me down, like telling me to duck or, you know, whatever. And I just kept pointing to. Uh, to will where he was out in the road and uh i don't know if i was saying cover me but in my head i was screaming like just cover me uh but again that may be hollywood but um but i remember pointing to him and, and running and that guy i mean he just kept using both arms like trying to tell me to get down i believe that was uh sergeant rob watson uh, uh he on the ra- on the radio traffic was 370 I, I believe that's rob watson sergeant rob watson and thomas mcpherson was one of his troops and uh, Chase Bruce. They responded. Uh, I believe they were the first to respond in the squad cars. Kent, uh, you were in SWAT at the time. Uh, where were you at in all this? So anytime there's a citywide assist, it turns into chaos. I don't know why we continue to do those. Um, granted, we want as much help as we can get, but you get everybody in the city that's free and available coming to one centralized location. It never works out, right? It jams up all the traffic getting into it. Uh, If you actually get to the place, you really, I mean, if you have people coming from other divisions that don't know where they're going, there's a problem there. Uh, The radio's tied up. I couldn't get any good information. I was trying to listen, switching back and forth between different radio channels, trying to figure out what was going on. On top of just Dallas PD, we had every organization in the state respond. Uh, The feds were there. We had game wardens, which we've never had before. Uh, We had sheriffs. We had uh, city marshals. So the communication amongst all those groups turns really bad, really, really fast. But somebody took charge and actually started running things the right way. And we ended up getting the whole place surrounded. And obviously we'd, we'd do our thing. Um, but it was pretty uneventful from my side. I mean, it's, it's one of those deals where 
usually when SWAT shows up, everything's pretty much under control. You know, if it's not under control by the time the SWAT team gets there, then that gets really, really dicey. Casey, when the when the sergeant starts uh, waving you to get down, get back, did you see him? Like, did, did he eventually go out and, and uh, recover Will? <clears throat> not that guy. He, A his, different one? Okay. His car was, like, parked up in the yard. Okay. And maybe there were the one – so there was two other squad cars that I remember – uh, there were parts – well, that doesn't make sense because I don't think there was enough room in the street. Maybe there was enough room to drive around him or something, but they were there. Uh, I, I mean, I saw those other other police officers there, and I could hear that gunfire, you know, them exchanging um, bullets. But um, I finally ended up getting behind, like ducking down behind a, a van. Mm-hmm. Later, find, later to find out I was in front of the shooter's house. Um, but, but I was across the street. Um, there was a, a squad car that came from Dolphin Roadside, and he pulled up in there, and uh, there was about three of them that were picking Will up. You know, they had his hands above his head and his feet, and they'd slide him in the back seat, and then they pushed him too far, and then they'd shut the door, and then they'd have to slide him back because his hands and in, in, in his feet. And I was just sitting there waiting, though, for them to tell me, okay, come on, you know, so I could go get him. Um, but they ended up transporting him and from what i understand you know the cop i mean ultimately saved his life you know he pushed the gas and didn't let off from what he said and that second avenue exit for people that don't live in dallas is a pretty sharp turn you know he took it probably going you know very very fast i don't want to get him in trouble but yeah it ain't gonna get him in trouble um but no that was uh that was pretty but I mean, I, I knew in the pretty scary what I was going to say. But in that moment, though, I knew again, it, I was just like, man, I, I know he's dead. And so I, I lay down between the, the tires and the curb, you know, just try. To, I want to be off the ground a little bit, but I want to try to like not be seen because I still feel like the shooter's behind me. And uh, I call my captain who. So at 19, there's an engine truck and an ambulance. So the engine and ambulance are on the run. So I knew the truck was still back at the station, and so I called him and I said, "Hey, uh, go to go to Baylor. Will's been shot." And he said, "Do what?" I said, "I, I got to go. Go to Baylor." And I hung up. And then uh, another squad car pulled up, and I hear this, Psst. and I kind of took a, like a deep breath and thought, "This is it." Then I turned around, and this cop car was going real slow, and. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, hey, man, I'm going to slow roll you. I have no idea what that means. Uh, but he said, I'm going to pull up. I'm going to pull up next to you. I'm not going to stop, but get in my back seat, and we're just going to go. I said, all right. And I open up the back door. I lean in. I think he just takes off. Half my body's still hanging out. It wasn't dragging, but I guess inertia, you know, lifting my feet off the ground. But we went like one block, and he said, get out. I said, okay. You know, and then. I got out, shut the door, and he drove off. I don't think I ever saw him again. But at that moment, I was <clears throat> pretty surrounded, you know, by, I mean, like Kent said, I mean, there was hundreds of cops there and and things. And that's when, you know, my wife calls me and uh, she said, hey, hey, are you okay? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm on a, I'm on a call. Uh, do you mind if I call you back? And she said, uh, yeah, okay. You know, and then we hung up. Whenever the, uh, the officers extract will and put him in the squad car and, and just shag ass out of there they were in a gunfight still do you, were you still hearing gun gunshots when you were watching this or was it already was the suspect already down do you know 
I don't know. I don't know when the suspect was taken down. Uh, there wasn't, from what I remember, uh, exchange of gunfire. There was a couple police officers that had their guns drawn still, and they were kind of hiding behind this, not the corner house, but the house next door to it. There's like a, a little, probably two or three foot little brick wall there. That they were kind of hiding behind it, and you know they still had their guns drawn, um, but you know, but they took three of them, you know, to load them up, load them up in the car. And you still believed he was, you believed he was dead at that time when they loaded him up. Will. Yeah. Yes. I thought the, the suspect already got away in my head. Like he, okay. he had already got up. So the officer, he, he basically provided a rolling barricade for you to jump in and, and get you out of the, the hot, the hot zone. Mm-hmm. And when you were dropped off, kicks you out of the car and he takes off. Walked. What happened then? That basically, at some point, the suspect took his own life, and then it just become a massive crime scene. At what point did you get word that Will was still alive? After I got to the hospital, so I went a block, and you know he asked me to get out. By this time, there's a a handful of chiefs, and I don't honestly know. There, there was a bunch of of fire. Everybody. Units. It was everybody. Yeah that were there um one of them in particular like one of the battalion chiefs she kept telling me like i want to hear your voice you, you know like every few minutes i'm going to be talking to you on the radio and i i was probably not so nice to her you know i kept telling her like well if you're gonna hear my voice i don't want to hear anything from you except for if will's dead or alive you know looking back they're not going to tell me over the radio um and then come to find out she had been working this entire time to just get me out of there. If they just would have taken me to Dolphin Road, well, now basically it's a barricaded person call and all these fire units can get the heck out of the way. Uh, so I know that was some of the frustrations on their side. I don't know exactly at what moment they – at one point a, a cop was like, hey, man, you want to come get in my car? And he just drove me over there to, to Dolphin Road. And that was a normal drive. Like we just drove and you know, during that time though, they're trying to ask me, I know it's hard, but what was he wearing? Or they're trying to give me like bottled water and you know, um, the helicopters flying over the perimeters being set up and everything. And I didn't know at that moment. I mean, am I mad? Am I sad? It, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to know was, is he dead or alive? Like I already know that he's dead. Just, just tell me so I can have closure and I can start preparing myself for what comes next. And so they finally take me over to Dolphin Road. And then I'll never forget one of the chief's drivers, uh, Chief Milam. He's a chief now, but he was a driver back then. He's, I mean, a monster of a man, you know, just Milam, he's a great guy. huge guy. Yeah, he's awesome. And he kind of like looks at me and he's got this big mustache. So you can't really tell his facial expressions a lot of times. And he puts his arms up like if you were to say, I don't know. And I just stopped and I was like, what did I do? And he takes the radio from me and he takes the computer from me and he just throws it in the back of the chief's car and he gives me this, you know, massive hug. And uh, he was like, why do you still have the radio and the computer? I said, well, I didn't want to have to pay for it. And he just, you know, squeezed me harder, you know, like you poor guy. Like, you know, I mean, you, that should have been the least of your worries, but I, I don't really know if that's the reason or if it was just, you know, that, a nervous response. I just didn't let it go, but yeah, you probably didn't realize you were still holding it. <clears throat> no. Yeah. He's a chief Milam. He is he over the training now. Mm -hmm. 
great guy. I actually want to get him on this on this show as well. We we we've uh, talked and he's we've talked about the ATO. He and I have talked recently about about what we do here. He, I want to get him on. I'll see what I can do to to help you out. Yeah, I got to sell. Yeah, he said yes. It's just one of those. You quickly got off the phone with your wife. At what point did you just finally have a conversation with her? This is what happened. This is what I just went through. How'd that go? Uh, well, sadly, she didn't get that where we sat down and had the conversation. Um, one of the another police officer, he took me to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, um, there wasn't anybody in the ER. It, it was real eerie. There was like fire units lined up um, on, on one of the side streets and then cop cars everywhere. And, you know, so again, I'm like preparing to walk in the ER and uh, find him in a body bag or, you know, whatever death looks like in the ER and I go in there and he's not there and I'm like just looking around like it's real eerie you know and and Will he'd worked in that district for a long time and and for full disclosure he's he's perfectly fine with me you know talking about him and, and part of this incident and stuff but you know not thinking in the moment but those nurses they probably were affected just as much you know because that was our primary hospital you know that we would transport to and uh, then somebody had, had said, are you looking for the fireman that was shot? And I said, yeah. He said, he's, he's upstairs. And I'm like, well, this must be special treatment for dead firefighters. So we go get in the elevator, and then uh, we go up to, I think, the seventh floor or something. And it's this great big open room. kind of looks like a church area. And uh, well, I open up, the, the elevator doors open up, and there's, I mean, chaplains and lawyers and uh, citizens, off-duty people. No, I don't think citizens were there, but people in, in street clothes and stuff and, and people are just all around. And I, I feel bad today, but like, I didn't, I didn't care to see them. You know, I'm like, where, where, where did they put his body? Like, and they're like, Oh no, he, he's still alive. And, uh, I was like, Oh really? And they said, yeah, they, when he got to the hospital, um, Turner off rescue three was standing there and opened up the back door of the the squad car he said it you know it's just blood everywhere he ends up putting a tourniquet on his on it on his leg and uh they the hospital staff brought a bed out and the turner said he he was talking to him and he said they were classmates in rookie school and he was asking him like hey are you okay buddy and he said uh i I can't breathe i can't breathe and as soon as they put him on that hospital bed he coded and uh, when they put him in the hospital room, you know, they're doing CPR and um, the, the truck crew that I had called and asked them to go to Baylor, you know, they're standing outside watching this, this take place. And uh, Dr. Isaacs, he's our medical director. Um, he had actually shown up to Baylor Hospital, which come to find out he didn't, I guess, have practicing rights at that time in the hospital. But all those nurses were so grateful because when he was in there, I mean, they still did their job, but it's like they hit that, the panic button or, or something and their job wasn't so normal anymore. And so they were kind of struggling with that. And Dr. Isaacs just showed up and, you know, cracked his chest, you know, cut him from one side to the other and we're exposed to his heart and he's literally massaging him with his hand. He calls for blood. They start giving him blood and his heartbeat starts again. And he says, Hey, we got to take him to surgery. And he, Dr. Isaac said that 
when they cut him open from side to side, there wasn't one drop of blood that came out. He literally bled out every drop. And so, you know, Will, from what we can gather, he doesn't remember, but we, he, we're assuming is he climbed out of the back of the ambulance when he heard those two gunshots and probably saw me running and tried to, to follow me. And that's when the shooter shot him and the bullet went up, you know, through his calf and then exploded in on his femur. And so 80% of his, his femur was shattered and, you know, the, all of his knee and then the majority of his, his tib fib. So we get upstairs and, you know, there's all these people there and well, obviously people are asking me what happened and I don't even care to really talk about it. You know, I'm just trying to find where's Will. Well, then they tell me that they had put a plastic straw in his leg. He's intubated. Um, he's still at critical condition. And I'm like, okay, um, what about his wife? Um, they're Korean family and she doesn't speak. She can speak English and she understands it very well, but she doesn't, she doesn't really speak it well, you know? And so now my mind starts going to, you know, she doesn't know a lot of people in the fire department and she didn't really know this culture. Like, you know, we've worked together at that time, Will and I for, you know, seven years and even coming to the station, she'd only say a few words. I mean, she's very, very sweet lady. She just not very, you know, personal and stuff when we come up to the, to the station, but there's also a whole bunch of families there and things. And so they reassured me that they, they've sent somebody to go pick her up. And when she gets there, that's the first time that I had cried because I just remember giving her a hug, you know, and, um, <clears throat> is that sense of, I didn't protect him. Mm. Survivor's go. It's, it's really powerful, man. Yeah. I didn't write this down cause I wouldn't even talk about it, but, <clears throat> um, but yeah, that was probably the hardest part of it all. Um, her not really understanding and then uh, thinking in my head, you know, like those thoughts of behind the, the building was I shouldn't leave him, you know, and then that's why it was like validated right then. I was like, man, um, and she had, <clears throat> they had a kid on the ground. Uh, she was actually pregnant at the time. My wife wasn't pregnant and we didn't have any kids at the time and you know and I didn't have any words to say you know we just kind of held each other you know and cried and then I know the engine company was up there I, I think I, I honestly don't remember and then I, I finally came out of the room they, they had a room for the family off to the side and so I came out and I just remember everybody asking me what happened and people said I probably told that story you know, close to three, four, five hundred times that night <clears throat> or that evening. And I, I was just like on repeat. I just kept saying it. And I know that was a long winded answer to answer your question about when I told my wife and she finally got to the emergency room. I mean, the, the hospital up upstairs. And um, again, I was just walking around sharing the story with people. And somebody told me, hey, I, I think your wife's here. And I looked over and when you gave her a hug and just she was just another person I told the story to. We talked about earlier about DFR's culture is 
when it comes to mental health and self-care and, and, you know, uh, in policing, we've had long, you know, stigmas and we have the similar culture of not putting mental health and, and self-care in the forefront. How did that change you? And this incident is life changing and it's, and it, and it, and in your case, it's kind of become career changing of what, what you do now and what you do for your, your department. Uh, can you kind of talk about that journey after this incident? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. We, we didn't really talk about mental health. Like I mentioned and neglecting ourselves is really a big, big part of it. Like that night, um, I remember at, at one point in time, it was nearing like 11 o'clock and my captain said, Hey, I think we're going to get out of here. And I said, Oh, do you mind if I go see him one more time? Um, I was able to go see Will in, in the room and he said, man, you can stay here as long as you need to. And I said, um, well, I'm going to go get back on the ambulance. And he said, Casey, you're off. I said, off, off on what? Like, no, I've, I've need to go like, you know, and, Again, it's not a, a macho mindset, right? I think it's just culture, and it's just it was just ingrained into us. Like you, do, you just don't quit. Like, and even if as bad as it sounds and as bad as it was, like there's still a job that needed to be done, you know. But I, I didn't. Uh, I was neglecting myself. I don't know if I answered your question though. No, I want to kind of get you into whenever you you got into the the peer support role and how that happened because obviously I'm not, I'm not saying you weren't a believer in self-care and, and, and mental wellness. And, um, you clearly were not doing then what you're are immersed in now. Right. So it kind of looks like this incident sets you on a path that you're still on. And I want to get into that. Yeah. So <clears throat> after that incident, a few weeks later, one of the vice presidents for the firefighter association worked at my station, um, Charles McLemore. And he had, uh, they had got a, an email from Houston fire association and they said, you know, Hey, we're hosting this peer support training. Are you guys willing to, to send some people? What their mindset was, they were trying to reach around the entire state and find some of the bigger, uh, firefighter associations. They come down and then, get to training and then take it back to your locals and then it kind of spreads out. And then we have like this statewide program. Well, I didn't know all that back then, but so he had just asked me, Hey, do you want to go to this training? And I kind of laughed at him. Like, are you kidding me? Like I'm that prankster. Like I piss people off daily. I, I'm not the guy that's willing to like, you know, help people. Like, I mean, that didn't really compute to me and so he said yeah you are and he sets the paper down and kind of walks off he's never told me this but I believe that he was trying to send me to go get help you know because I was you know probably struggling through that time and well when he set the paper down and kind of fell in the trash he walked away for some reason I picked that paper up I took a picture of it and I put it back in the trash fast forward a few weeks or maybe not even towards the end of that week, I was sitting in Pagosa Springs and uh, with my wife and 
you know, I got to drinking a little bit and I, I passed her my phone. I said, can you believe that the fire department asked me to go to this? And it was that peer support flyer. And she said, yeah, um, I do. And I was like, what, you know? And so we talked about it and, uh, I was like, so you think I should go do it? And she said, yes. All right. Well, we have to leave tomorrow because it was that weekend. So I cut her vacation short by three days. She's not frustrated by that at all. We literally land in DFW. I go home, I change clothes. And then there was actually four of us that went to that training. And one of the guys picks me up and we head to Houston and I went to that training. How big of an eye opener was that for you going to that training? It was a really big eye opener. Um, we had uh, critical incident stress management or CISM for many years. Um, but through my experience only, um, just sitting in that room and hearing the, the instructors, we had a, you know, battalion chief from Chicago that had been on, you know, 20 something years. And then we had a, I believe he was a Lieutenant at the time in, in from New York that were down there teaching this class and just hearing their experiences and just talking about like what peer support is. I was probably overwhelmed in like the first just few minutes of the, of the program. You think that was because you were actually hearing from some people that spoke your language and, and actually they got the culture, they lived the culture and it, and it wasn't Rick, Rick from HR up there telling you how to manage your, your inner thoughts and in your recovery. <clears throat> I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Cause the program it was built, you know, by firefighters for firefighters. You know, I mean, there was a psychologist that had influence and input and, and oversight, but, and it was almost like what people ex tell me all the time now is I help put their pain into words, but I feel like that's where I was at in that moment in training that, yeah, all the, the frustrations or some of the, the things that I had been struggling with, they had, you know, put it put it very blatantly into words well it was kind of like them speaking a, a language for the layman right because because you were at that point you probably had never heard that kind of talk especially now you're hearing it from somebody that they're firefighters themselves they're accomplished they're they've lived this life and culture and they're actually up there talking <clears throat> and i i really big i'm a big, big believer and you you know my thoughts on this of if you have the right messenger to deliver a message it matters and if you have somebody up there checking off the box or if you go to a counselor that doesn't understand the culture it could really sour you and you're not going to hear what's being said you're not going to hear the message i agree with that and you know and i know it's not right but i would do it is i think coming from someone from chicago new york like in my mind I hadn't been through anything like probably what they've experienced, right? Because, I mean, Chicago had a, a, a run of suicides, you know, a short span of time. And New York, I mean, we know about 9-11 and things. And so just comparatively in my head, you know, I've, they are almost like subject matter experts in this because they've been through it in quotations, you know. They probably also will look at it on another flip side. They probably didn't have a active shooter with an AR, you know, uh, they weren't in their crosshairs either. They're, everybody's got their own experiences. And so you go to that training, kind of have an awakening like, of sorts. What goes on next? Like you, 
did you just say I'm I'm buying in I'm buying into this peer support role and how'd that look I, I did buy in um, even though Dan DeGrice uh, he told me in a long he's been teaching a lot of classes and been involved with this for a really long time and he's never had somebody that talked so much sit on the front row and not say anything for two straight days um, but he's the one that messed up because when I called him on Saturday I gave him one day to travel home and then I called him on Saturday because he said if you need any help or any guidance on moving forward, call me. And then he messed up by answering that day because I hadn't stopped calling him since. But um, I knew, and your starfish stories analogy is a lot better, but I felt like we need it. Um, You know, the people, not everybody's going to buy in, you know, and especially for me, like I didn't buy in, so I can't expect everybody else to, but I'm like a goldfish, you know, in the Corpus Christi Bay, how you know, how do I get the big fish on my side and the little fish and then, you know, kind of bridge that. You talk about the starfish story. Um, you cannot save everybody and not everybody, not everybody is in a position and equipped at that moment to recognize that they need to be, they need help or need to be saved. But if you don't try, you know, and you, you're, you may try your ass off and sometimes you're just not always going to be able to save everybody, but you can make a difference. You can make a difference in everybody's life, whether it's being an advocate for therapy or, you know, uh, going and speaking to groups. You may talk to a group of 30 and only three get something out of it. Well, there's three there that you helped. <clears throat> right. And for me personally, I don't ever want to push, push that message of we can't help anybody because I don't want to ever validate that thought when somebody's, right. you know, struggling like, Oh, I guess I'm that one. They can't, um, you know, Dan, he always says that suicide's preventable, but not avoidable. You know, for me, I, I the opportunities, right. I, I like giving, or at least want people to know, or at least have the opportunity to intervene. Cause I don't feel like I'm saving anybody, right. I'm, I just feel like I'm having the opportunity to either encourage them, empower them, educate them, yeah. educate them, or maybe make them self-aware that they are in a position at that time and yeah, you may not, people save themselves. They get to a point where they are self-aware and they, they save themselves, but you going to them and providing them information and also just the support that it could, that can nudge them in a direction of, of, of being saved. A lot of times we, we just uh, share information and kind of open eyes to the possibilities and, and, you know, bring that awareness to the person to where then they look for that help. Absolutely. So can you describe what your role now is with, uh, in DFR? It's, it's hard to, to put it into words, but so I'm, I mean, I'm the peer support coordinator. They, in 2022, they had the department, we had had three suicides in three years and we'd had several attempts and, um, I don't know if it's experience or reputation or <clears throat> me just being me. I, I don't believe it. It was me, you know, but like you mentioned earlier, it does the facilitator or, or the person, the messenger has to be, you know, a, a particular person, if you will. Um, but the department had created that position, um, you know, for me, with me in mind. Um, but they made it very clear, like I wasn't forced to take it or anything because, it was, it was a hard decision to make coming off the fire truck and, 
you know, essentially not being a firefighter anymore. You know, I still work for the fire department, but I'm not on the front lines as a firefighter anymore. And I was really worried about my reputation as far as us versus them. Am, am I one of them and not one of us anymore? You know, now, now he doesn't get it or, you know, all these different things. But I feel like a lot of those were kind of made up in my mind. But to answer your question, kind of what I do now is, in short, you know, help the ones that that help everybody else. You know, when we're traditionally, yes, we've had EAP and we do have uh, an on-staff psychologist and we have a resiliency coordinator that she coordinates and, and brings a lot of education and things, which I think is important, especially from the preventative aspects of it. But as far as having somebody, and I just lead a team, you know, the peer support team, I'm not the only one that's doing it, but kind of lead them through, you know, building that rapport, building that connection and, you know, and kind of pairing people up with relatable experiences to try to give someone the best opportunity for the best outcome. How was this received whenever you got involved and what was the, what was your perception of how it was received coming from you? now or back in 2017 the evolution of it i mean 2017 till now yeah i know everything's it's still evolving i'm sure but just kind of describe that so back in 2017 you know it it was like underground unspoken i mean you we don't talk about it you know and i got involved when typically people are getting in trouble on the job or things have gotten so bad at home that they were reaching out to like the e-board members through the association. It's crisis already. Correct. It's a reactive method. <clears throat> yeah. And so, and in Dallas or probably other places as well, but maybe I can just speak from my own experiences, but after you go through a training, like you're now the expert, you know, the e-board members were just, Hey, call Casey, call Casey, call Casey, you know? And yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. And, but what I did do is I didn't BS anybody. Um, I was just very upfront, very open and honest with them. But I think the biggest thing is I was able to relate with a lot of people, you know, and one of the things that I've kind of learned is, you know, our, our experiences are different, but our reactions a lot of times are, are the same. And that's how, you know, we can, we can relate to people that sure I was shot at and you, you know, pulled somebody out of a burning car, you know, when the fire engine wasn't there or something like that, I, I feel like that's where we can relate is, is our response to that, whether if it's being angry or feeling like nobody understands or feeling, you know, that survivor's guilt or whatever. But fast forward it, I still didn't believe that I was the the person, you know, cause it was still just operating in the background volunteer through the association. I had a lot of support through them. And then I even called like a few of the officers that I respect kind of around the city to figure out like, Hey, am I really making the right decision by taking this position or not? And then after I took it, you know, the, the firefighters, a lot of firefighters, I can't say all of them, but a lot of firefighters were very excited. They were very receptive. They were very like, you, you are the person for the job and, you know, pretty, pretty excited about it. It's like, that's a, that's, that's a guy I could follow. Was it validating to see from your peers that their excitement and you taking it? Eventually. I mean, a, a long answer is short. Eventually, I, I still was very hesitant because there's not a one-size-fits-all program out there. There's yeah. not, you know, and I, I didn't see myself, like, 
I guess it was very natural what I was doing. And so if you'd asked me what, what, you know, like you asked me, what do you do? And it's like, I really, it's hard to explain it because it, it's just kind of natural, right? To hearing horrible stories or hearing like things that people are going with, I mean, like going through in that moment, I don't really react or, you know, it doesn't really throw me off because I, I don't know. I don't have an answer why, but, um, but it, it, I didn't receive it very well for a really long time, but I think that I'm doing better. That's something that I've, I've been trying to work on is kind of owning that and realizing, Hey, I can't go in there doubting myself. And, but I don't want to seem like I forgot where I came from and I don't want to seem arrogant or cocky or like I have all the answers either. No, none of us have all the answers, but better have a answer than no answer when you go and you go into and you have it sounds like you have the support of of the people around you uh for the most part you know you're not gonna always make everybody happy but you can't even try but i think they made the right selection i want to go into the um recently you got tanya glenn uh on board with your department and and helping out with the um training aspect why why did you go that route and then to get her involved. <clears throat> so she's, she's been doing it a really long time and I feel like she speaks our language. Uh, she's a lot of those big instances when I was talking earlier about like comparing traumas, you know, even though we're not supposed to do that, I feel like a lot of us do do that um, intuitively. But so she kind of brings a lot of that experience. She brings a lot of that knowledge. I feel like she has been kind of teaching or, or barking up that peer support tree for, you know, since I think she mentions like 1993 in her trainings um, and for, for the longest time. And, and I can't imagine how lonely it's felt and frustrating it is for, you know, going around the country and, and building these teams and things, but still they're not necessarily buying into the model, but they're buying into what she's doing, but then they default to what they know. And then, that's frustrating for her to come in. And so to, I think that it's important for us to hear those stories and for us to hear how, you know, quote unquote bad or, or traumatized somebody was, or, you know, people are close to losing their jobs and things. And she's able to come in and, and help, but not only her do it, she'll tell you that she can't do this without firefighters or, or peers, right? Like whether if you're in police or EMS or flight paramedics or whatever, like you have to have the people that they work with, uh, to really make this successful. Um, <clears throat> does, does Dr. Glenn, uh, push more of a proactive model for you guys as, and as opposed to the reactive model that, you know, when you first started? Y yes, she does. Um, she really pushes the, the resiliency training, like in the, the rookie schools, which we have implemented, um, I think they get around, I believe it's 10 or 12 hours um, that we get like broken up through their, their training. But she really pushes that to kind of give them some tools and skills to help prepare them for when they go through bad stuff. Um, and then also continuing those conversations around at the fire stations and uh, trying to keep those reports built up. So when something happens it's not this outsider it's not super uncomfortable for people to come in and and talk about yeah no we i'm happy i'm happy to to say that that um that tanya is now one of our uh ato counselors and 
her reputation. Uh, she, like you said, she's been doing it since the mid nineties. I think Oklahoma city bombing was the first time she did, um, EMDR training on one of the firefighters that went into the, um, to the nursery. So she understands this trauma. She, she, she's, she's a good one to have and kudos to DFR for, uh, for getting her involved in your, uh, in your agency. So Casey, um, within this, uh, last year and, and a half, more or less uh, since the Dallas police wellness unit, uh, came into existence, we've kind of formed a, an alliance with you and, uh, DFR peer support where, um, when we host trainings, we invite you guys and vice versa. When you guys have training, uh, like Dr. Tanya Glenn's, uh, training, you invited our people to, to attend. I think that, um, you know, that alliance is very important for all first responders within the city of Dallas. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was, <clears throat> that's real important to me. And um, not only are we trying to blur the lines within our own fire department as far as North Dallas and South Dallas and different associations and different areas of the city that you work and stuff, you know, we, we want that level of pride for those firefighters to have, but also to know that just even within other cities right the job is still the same the effects on us are are similar and i think that extends to the police department as well and by you guys even being open to that and willing to have those conversations they were you know it, it seemed a little more a little more challenging in the beginning and it was kind of like what what are you guys in this for or what you know but it, i feel like over the last year and a half like you said it's we've not became one right we're still our separate entities but i mean i know i call on you guys to either vent or to kind of share stuff too and, uh, and as peer coordinators that's important to have as well and um i know we've had firefighters call you guys and and to me i don't that's not an offense it's not a slap in the face to me that's somebody else that's getting the appropriate help you know because i trust you guys and um and and knowing that I don't expect you to share with me any information or, or anything. Cause it's not about the information. It's about the people getting help. And I know we've talked before about that extending out to the streets where, you know, it'd be nice to get back to the days to where maybe police, maybe not so much hanging out at the fire station. We can't call it that cause chiefs might listen to this, but coming by to use the restroom or just take a second to cool off in the summertime and get a cup of water or have a bowl of ice cream. But then out on a run you know you don't have just the four firefighters sitting in the air-conditioned engine and, and the police officers sitting by themselves in the squad car we can maybe bridge that bridge that gap yeah i think it's very important uh, we've had a resilience forum with dr tanya glenn uh i've invited you to uh suicide prevention classes and uh now uh we have our fight club uh, that's up and running which is a aa4 first responders only um and you know it, you can be retired, you can be active duty, uh, doesn't have to be from Dallas. Uh, these are programs that I think are, have been, we've been lacking in having these things in place to, to help each other out. And uh, now, uh, you know, we can just keep uh, growing and helping each other out. I agree. All right, Casey, um, we've covered a lot, but I have one final question. What advice would you give to all the first responders out there, whether it's police, fire, EMT, frontline folks, 
that could help them survive the world of the first responder? And there are there mistakes that you made that they can learn from? So I made a lot of mistakes, but for the sake of time, um, you know, I've, I've pissed a lot of people off. I've burned a lot of bridges, you know, because of pride or being selfish, unaware, unhealthy or unhappy, however you want to look at it. But taking care of yourself and checking where your priorities lie, the job's only going to give you back so much. You know, if we aren't taking care of ourselves or our families first, it may seem like happiness is impossible. And so I'd say like relationships are key, you know, being, be nice and be respectful. And I think that kind of encompasses a whole bunch of mistakes. Hopefully people can kind of, you know, read through some of that stuff, but, um, ultimately just relationships. You never know when you're going to need somebody or need help yourself. This ultimately, I mean, this is the greatest job in the world. The bad things happen. Um, I challenge the first responders listening to ask yourself, what do we do with that? When vigilance becomes almost mechanical in our actions, you know, when responding or attending to emergency situations, um, what commonly is overlooked is the effects of the aspects of the job. So I just encourage you to have a plan in place for when those quote unquote bad things happen. And, you know, you don't have to make that plan alone. And I challenge you to reach out earlier than later and include family, faith, friends, and hobbies in your life. Um, I'll leave you leave them with this quote by Rachel Raymond that I really like is the expectation we can be immersed in suffering and lost and not be touched by it is as unrealistic it's expecting to be able to walk through water without getting wet hey brother hey sister I'll never give up on you hey Mrs. hey mister I'll see this all the way through Sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Down when you're lonely, I'll pull you up. Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough. I'll be your shoulder, together we'll run up from the bottom. Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey missus, hey mister, I'll see this all the way See this all the way through
No matter how far for the gold and the blue, I'll never give up on you.